When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to the Garibaldi Red podcast from Nottinghamshire Live. My name is Matt Davis and we're pleased to be joined this week by former Reds boss Sean O'Driscoll. Sean, good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Yes, this is uh, uh, again another Zoom call. Although it's not a Zoom call, it's a, was it a street yard. I've never done street yard before, was it? Yeah, we're all getting uh, used to this new technology. Yeah, how are you finding 2020 lockdown life from a football point of view? Has it been a big challenge work-wise? Uh, it's, it's probably been really um, innovative for the for, you know trying to think of different ways to connect with the players and also connect with the coaches. So it's, it's in, once the novelty is worn off, then it was getting a bit tiresome. Um, but initially, it was quite exciting, to be honest. I should say, what you do now? Are you uh, running the academy at Portsmouth? Is that a rough? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of head of coaching and, and learning, really. Um, so, uh, quite a broad range. I'm still trying to work out what exactly what, what exactly my remit is, but uh, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, we'll talk through your career, obviously focusing on Forest, but you've had quite a varied career management-wise. You cut your teeth at, at Bournemouth, where you played for so long. Was that, as a manager, quite that must have been quite an eye-opening experience? Because from what I've read on you, you know, researching up on you, not only were you picking the team and doing the tactics, you were arranging commercial deals and trying to get training kit and you know dealing with the challenges of a club basically having no money. Was that quite an eye-opener for you? I think it was... Um... Uh, probably in, on reflection and looking back it was but at the time it was just the things that we did um so uh, you know casting my mind back to that time it's um it's like most things you can look through it through rose tinted glasses but it, it was just what we what we did it was the way we survived and um, i suppose that was those days well i don't know i mean i'm sure there's some <clears throat> low league clubs where managers and members of staff are doing multiple multiple tasks because that's just the way they the only way that they can run. But um yeah, it was um I don't know, I was I was sort of late into football, so um I didn't have any preconceived ideas of what you did or what you didn't do. Um so that's sort of stuck with me right the way through my career really. i d I've not won. So um something needs to be done then it's uh probably needs everybody to pull together to get it done um so it, it was what it did create was a great camaraderie amongst the the staff and and the players and uh, uh and the supporters which i suppose is still there to, to this day what did you, you said you were late to football what did you do in the real world outside well real world if you know what i mean I was, outside I was, football yeah i was never um i was very sporty, but I went to a school that did a lot of athletics. Um, so we didn't really play football that much. We, we did, but we didn't. It was half a dozen games a season. So football was never on the radar. Um, 
so I, I, when I left school, it was you know pick your job, I suppose, more that more so than anything else. And um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and ended up being um, sort of joining an engineering firm as a commercial apprentice, which sounded quite interesting. Just going through various departments, um, and then sort of choosing which one you'd sort of you'd like to uh you know that, that interested you most um didn't work quite work out like that but um i just started playing football with um some friends really over on a sunday morning and within what was 18 it was probably within four years ended up at Fulham. did uh that come as a surprise to people you worked with them were you were you well into football uh in in your working life was it a, kind of a an aside then and, uh, my, my boss was a really big football fan, so um, the, the la- my last season when I was playing, probably equivalent to what would it be now? It'd be conference football, I suppose. Um, and the amount of well, we didn't do that much travelling really, but things when you play uh, midweek and you had to leave early, or um, you know, you might get back late at night and you'd come in an hour late. Uh, he was really okay with that, so that was qu- that was quite. Uh, fortunate um, but the uh, the opportunity to join a professional club really came out of the blue for everybody um, I'd, I'd been playing and um, probably one of my best friends still is Richard O'Kelly who knows Aston Villa sort of um, got snapped up by Warsaw um, and I, I followed suit to Fulham so uh, quite quickly did you always think you'd be a manager? Was that something that was long on the, on the horizon, or did you also kind of did that come out of the blue a bit in a sense as well? Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was conscious. I think at the early part of my career of this is going to be you know you sign a whatever two year contract and then what happens after that. So I sort of maxed out everything that the PFA could possibly uh, could possibly. Uh, uh, well, the, the amount of courses that I've been on is untrue just because I thought, well, this might end. What's, what can I do? And at the time, the PFA, or still, the PFA were very uh, obliging in saying, well, we'll pay for to go on you know, this bricklaying course or this plastering course or this HGP course. So, uh, yeah, I very soon became uh, <clears throat> quite a... Quite a um, a consistent uh, user of uh, the PFA services. Can you, um, without harping on too much about your time at Bournemouth, but can you outline some of the challenges that you did face? Because they're not the club they are now, were, uh, um, were they? You you had a lot of, you know, off the field financial challenges that the club faced. That, that must have impacted your work a lot. I didn't know any. I didn't know any any anything. Well, I had no experiences to fall back on, so it was just the norm. I think the the the, the biggest challenge was when we um, we sort of went into receivership and we were close to going out of business. And the club, probably the first club that actually became a community based club. I think it was a way out of um, of actually keeping the club alive. So the 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 club actually then get got uh, the the ownership of the club got sort of passed back to almost committee, um, which is quite difficult when um, you go to a board meeting and there's about two hundred people there. Um, 
So that was strange where you've got one faction of people wanting to do one thing and another faction of people wanting to do another thing and there was never any consensus and whatever the, whatever we agreed when we eventually agreed something you do you do always have part of the part of the group doing their best to scupper whatever whatever we decided so that was it was the right thing to do at the time because it was it saved the football club um but as as it progressed then it just became a noose really to try and move the things forward and uh, you were ever, you're forever battling not not so much um it was just almost egos I think more than anything else um, uh, you know we didn't have a lot of finance to play with or a lot of choices to make it was a case of what's the best one for this particular club at this particular time and um, you know some people can, when they get involved in a football club decision making sort of um, goes out the window or good decision making goes out the window Your Forest story in a sense kind of began at Doncaster, if we can kind of hark back to that season where you were pushing for promotion. It was a happy ending because you did get promoted at Wembley by beating Leeds in the playoff final, but you did miss out to Forest uh, on that final day. What was what are your recollections of, of that season? That run-in was very intense and that final day went against you and went for Forest. What was that like as a manager? Um. To be fair, we we played Cheltenham away on the last game and I think we just, whether we needed a draw or a win, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. Probably just a draw. And it, I think it was, and that, Cheltenham are still and was at that time a really good club and I knew Keith Downing, the manager. Uh, and you, you almost, we were either going to seal their fate or they were going to stay up or they were going to seal out. You know, we were going to go into the playoffs or get promoted. So it was a really strange, it was a strange day. Um and it was one of those, I think early on, one of those days where we felt that, um, I, and, I, and again, I, I'm not looking back and thinking about it. I, I can remember at the time thinking, this could be one of the, the games, no matter what we do, we just can't score. I mean, the, the, the ball, I remember um, the ball hitting the inside of both posts and dropping into the goalkeeper's arms and thinking, um, and and everybody in football supporters players coaches managers will will know that that feeling when you think no matter what we do the things are not going to go for us um so it was i don't know it was um yeah you know, I, I think i can remember after the game and everybody being disappointed um uh and saying to the players look you know the, there's a history of teams that finish um, just outside the uh, the automatic places going into the playoffs and it's usually the team that gets into the playoffs at the last minute as the momentum so um, let's get rid of the disappointment, whatever you've got to do um, this weekend um, get it out of the system and let's come back um, and the, the, the chairman of the owner at the time, John Ryan, was really good um, because he turned around and said, especially to me, he said, Sean, I've had a dream and we're going to play Leeds in the um, in the playoff final at Wembley uh, and we're going to win. So this is just all fate, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Which at the time I thought, mm, OK, well, it yeah, just turned out that way and he was convinced that he had some premonition that that was going to be the top, that was going to be the the outcome. So 
And that's where it ended up that way, so please for him. I guess from a fan's point of view, that's the best way to go up at Wembley in the final uh, of the playoffs. From a manager's point of view, uh, I guess you'd have rather gone up automatically and done without the stress. It must be a, a nightmare in a sense that you probably, is it hard to enjoy a Wembley playoff final? It's hard to enjoy any game. I don't know, it's just a Wembley playoff. <laughs> uh, people say to me, what, would, what was your feelings after? And it's just relief. And I think that's been reiterated on many occasions with many managers. You know, you, you sort of worry about things that can go wrong and, I remember at the the uh, um, we were really confident we could beat Leeds. I think the players were really confident, not overconfident, but they were really confident. We'd played them twice in the league and done really well against them. So, and they were the we were sort of the underdogs and um, obviously local Yorkshire derbies. But I think they were the, they, they had an air of confidence about them. And then sort of Richard Wellens sort of pulled up in the warm up and that's have a uh, an injection into his backside. Anti-inflammatory to his backside to get him to get him onto the pitch, really. So you just they're, they're the things that you just can't um, you can't counter for. They're just things that happen. And, uh, um, you know, you've just got to trust your players, and uh, that's what we did. How did you end up at Forest? Things obviously you had before you were manager. You had a stint as coach under Steve Cottrell. Uh, how did that one come about? Steve and I go back a long way since he was uh, one of the many jobs I did at Bournemouth was um, was be part of the medical team and um, a long time ago the FA did a treatment of injuries two year treatment of injuries course for ex players that could work in football clubs not not as the you could actually in lower divisions work as the physio but um, more more working with a qualified physio so that was where that was where my career was going to go really. Um, and Steve had um, snapped a cruciate in a game and um, I just ended up spending a lot of rehabbing him through that, which is quite a long process. Um, so you just get to know people a little bit better and you sort of spend that much time with him. Um, uh, so our paths didn't cross really in, in football and um, I was working with a, another player, an ex-player of mine, Carl Fletcher, who was manager at Plymouth at the time and then Steve just rang me up out of the blue and said, you know, would you fancy coming in and uh, helping me to the end of the season? Um, which was a bit of a no-brainer, really. I was living in the Midlands, so it was a, it was an easy commute, a um, bit, bit easier than Plymouth. <laughs> um, so that was that was where it came up. I, I, I think, well, I know Steve had inherited Steve McLaren's backroom staff with Rob Kelly, Paul Barron and Jimmy Floyd. And I think there was a bit of, um, not tension, but I think like most managers, they want their own people in. Mm -hmm. I didn't think at the time Forrest thought that was, you know, they didn't really want to start paying up three different people. Um, So I came in um, and probably probably just eased the tension, I suppose, just brought the whole thing together. I think that was my main role, to be honest, just to be a conduit to go, you know, you know, to, to to work with Rob and Paul and Jimmy, um, who were great, and, and and work with Steve as well, and sort of provide that, um, I suppose, that line of communication and try and get the best out of all everybody, really. Um, and we ended up, I think, if I'm not right, we ended up probably having the best record post Christmas, apart from Wolves. I think Wolves went all automatically, and I think our record since then was. Um, was as good as anybody else's so um it worked and i was you know as surprised as anybody when 
the new owners decided to uh, to sort of uh, dispense with Steve's services. For what reason, I still don't know. Had you left by that point to go to Crawley, or were you well, still on uh, staff? Yeah, Steve had asked me to stay on, but I knew he wanted his own people in there, and it was a case of, yeah, I just thought it was a bit of loyalty from his point of view to say, well, you've done really well, we've, done, we've, we've finished really well, and... Um, uh, I, I just thought, no, you, you, you know, this is a chance at the end of the season, you know, to rebuild and uh, or to build from what we'd started and uh, bring your own people in. So that was really the reason. So, um, yeah, I was surprised when um, when I heard it. Uh, uh, how was it uh, uh, started his regime? Uh, before we talk about Fawaz and you returning, I mean, what kind of club? did you join when Steve was manager? Because uh, if my timelines are right, was it Nigel Doughty wanted out? Money was tight. It didn't sound like a very happy club. Uh, is that a fair assessment or have I got that wrong? Yeah, there was, yeah, there was, um, uh, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't aware, I suppose, of all that. There was, there was unrest, I suppose, but there's unrest at every, every football club. If you, if you suddenly keep changing managers, you know, the players then, Somebody said to me once, the, you know, if you were a player and the managers keep changing, why would you put your trust in somebody if you think, well, he might not be there very long? Um, so it's a bit, it's a bit like that. I think um, uh, the, the, the managers and coaches all all work differently. So you know, Steve McLaren will be completely different to Steve Cottrell. So you know, it's quite difficult to get used to. This is what one person wants, and this is what another person wants. So I think that creates a problem. Um, so I, I, to be fair, I, th- I, I quite enjoyed being not the manager, if I'm honest, because you could have a different relationship with the players, um, and, um, and and I, I had a sort of a bit of a niche, a niche um, role at the football club. Um, uh, you know, trying to work across a lot of the departments, the youth department, the, the reserves, and uh, you know, trying to link in with Paul and uh, and Rob and uh, Jimmy as well as work with Steve. Um, you know, and I think because I'd had a I'd had a relationship with Steve, then you have a, a you know a degree of trust that um, you know if he needed to go and speak to the border on, on getting the player in, um, which he was really good at and. Um, and you know, I could take over and, and organise the training for him, um, even though I might delegate it to to the three other lads. So uh, that that worked, worked quite well. The, the, the things that were going uh, above that, um, I wasn't really party to. So, how did you end up as manager? Then you talked about Fawaz, and you were surprised that he sacked Steve. I remember Fawaz saying he wanted a a big name after that and you know obviously you've had a good career and you've managed in the championship at Doncaster but with all due respect you know you weren't <laughs> and Ancelotti or whoever they were they wanted so how, how did you end yeah. up getting the job yeah well, I, that was said to me from day one and um my whole name is Sean Michael I'm a Catholic so Benedict O'Driscoll so you can't get no bigger name than that one <laughs> that was my standard reply to anybody who said that um to be fair, I was working with Steve Coppel at Crawley. Crawley, he was the whatever you call it, technical director, or and I got a phone call um, from Forrest saying, um, "Could you have a word with Steve?" They were, Fairways was a big Man United fan, 
and and uh, I had a uh, and he was sort of um, Steve Copple's name um, came up in conversation and my name because I was working with him said oh we can contact Sean and then so I I mentioned to, to Steve that they would be interested in him being um, forest manager which I duly duly uh, um, told Steve about Steve then went to speak to them. Uh, in London, um, and to be fair, asked me along. Said, "Well, you come along. Um, you know the forest people as well." So, um, so I came along and really sat in the corner, being totally ignored. While Fawaz and um, everybody else talked about Man United glory days, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I was um, yeah just in, in the corner reading a magazine. Um, uh, and then after it, then we finished, and then I can remember going downstairs and saying, um, saying to Steve, well, you know, is it something that you'd, you'd like to do? And he went, not really, um, but it'd be a good job for you. <laughs> he said to me, I said, that's great, Steve, but they don't want me, they want you. Um, anyway, just uh, two or three days later, I got a phone call saying they were, I, I think they were really, the, the, season, the, the pre-season had started, uh, you know, they needed to get something settled. I knew all the players. I knew the backroom staff. Um, and I think I had obviously people at the club who who thought that I'd be a good fit. So yeah. I think they convinced Fowers to um, to sign me um, or to, to talk to me. Um, and even that was an interesting conversation because I, I can remember going into the room and they were talking about um, – I can't remember that, but it was something to do with the the, the, the team and the finances. Mm-hmm. And, and I asked a question and um, uh, the three or four people in the room just went off into Arabic, um, just just talk. I didn't know what was going on. It was just as if I'd said something wrong and they were now being very animated and angry. And then they all, they all stormed off into another room and their solicitor was there or their lawyer. And I said to him, what? What, have I said something wrong? And they said no. He said, but in their culture, they they offer somebody something, and it's it's the culture is to accept it. Mm. He said, obviously, you've questioned something, and that's what they're now going to discuss. It's like the fact that you've actually questioned it. It doesn't really matter what you've questioned, but you've questioned something, which is again. <laughs> That doesn't just, bode well for being a manager, though, does it? Really? No, it's just a strange, you know. I, you know, it's a big thing on knowing people's culture and, and understanding mm-hmm. how you go about the things that you have to do. Um, uh, but then they came back, and then they sort of then we sort of discussed some some other things, and the same thing happened, and then that so was a bit bizarre, a bizarre situation. Um, and I left, and then. Um, I just got a phone call saying, you know, they'll, they'll, they'd like to accept, they'd like you to accept the job. So I was, um, I, I went in there with my eyes wide open. Let's face it, I, I didn't. It was just, it was just a. I'd really, I really, I'd enjoyed my time at the club previously with Steve. I knew everybody. It felt comfortable. I think the players had accepted me, um, and I had a different relationship with them. I could go in as the manager, but they knew me from somebody else. So it was, I, I wasn't like. Um, one of the big things about managers are, you know, gaffer and boss and all this business. And it's, they knew me, Sean. So yeah. uh, that, I thought, well, I thought that helped. It made me feel comfortable as well. So, uh, so we walked through the door and, um, and Rob, who 
who I still keep in touch with now, um, presented me with, well, by the way, Sean, we've got five players from uh, Q8 that the dear one wants to sign. Oh, okay. Are they any good? No. <laughs> so that was my first one. And the, to be fair to the Q80 boys, they were fine. You know, you talk to them and they go, they go Sean, we, we don't want to be here. We, it's just we, we're told to come over. It's just that's what happens. And we were away from our families. Uh, it's Ramadan. It's pre-season. Fitness-wise, they were way off it. You know, they kept breaking down, and then you know you couldn't you couldn't get them into any games or anything. I think we played we played one of them against Villa. I think in a pre-season friendly, and I think he lasted forty-five minutes and got came off with an injury. Um, mm. And then we were told that we had to go to a tribunal to to put a case forward to uh, sign them because they were outside the uh, the uh, international top whatever it is top 20 clubs that you can sign people but if they aren't that said you've got to have a special case so that was again that was that was just interesting going well we're going we're going to try and get i think it was three in the end three q80s who were creating internationals but um work permits for forest knowing full well that the they didn't fill the criteria mm. but we had to do it because that's what the owner wanted um, mm. So you sort of go through this sham thing where I can remember David Pleat telling me, asking me, Sean, um, have you seen these players play? Uh, no, David, because they've been injured and um, not had a chance to get him onto the pitch. Okay. Uh, do you know how much the club are prepared to pay for them? No, nobody's told me that. Well, they've offered them these contracts, which is like, Wow. <laughs> Uh, so there's lots of questions like that where I'm just playing. I, I don't know. Um, mm. So it was yeah. Um, obviously, we came out of that meeting, and the answer was no. <laughs> which, which then was a Mark Arthur, the CEO at the time, had that inevitable conversation with Fairways to say they've turned down the application for uh, the three Q80 boys, which I think was a relief for the Q80 boys. But it um, again, it created a bit of a stir. I suppose I should ask what you made of Fawaz then. I mean, you've added to the stories I've heard about him there in some kind of madcap stuff that was going on. What was your impression of him in those early days when he'd just taken over the club? Um, <laughs> I just think he was... I, I, I actually... Um, me and Keith Burt, who was the chief scout at the time, we were, we were chatting to him. He had, he had a habit of, of bringing me up on... I don't know, three o'clock in the afternoon and saying, can you get down to London to have a meeting? Mm. So, okay, so then you jump into a train, get down to London. I'd get down to London and he'd be in bed. And so you'd be sitting there <laughs> and uh, and then he'd come down in his long, I don't know, they're not pyjamas, but it looked like, you know, like nightgown and then mm. he'd cross-legged and we'd just chat and there would be no reason really for me to be there apart from you just wanted to chat about football <laughs> you, know, it wasn't like, you know there wasn't no detailed question and it was a case of yeah so that happened two or three times when i had to say look i've got no problem if you want to arrange your meetings but ringing milton spur in the moment saying can you get down to london is a bit you know it's a, <laughs> it's a bit awkward mm. um so, I, but he, I, to be fair to him, he didn't say anything wrong in that. It's his culture. I was saying to, I was just me, me and Keith offered 
because we had no idea what Q80 football was like. So he's telling me that this player and this player are the best players in sliced bread. So we said, well, we, can we can we come over and watch a Q80 game? Which he was quite surprised that we'd be prepared to do that. So we flew over to Q8 um, and watched a, a game. So we flew over in the morning, watched the game in the evening and flew straight back. And um, it was just... Well, there was no midfield play because it was so hot. And it was like, well, you, the ball's in one end of the pitch and then really it just gets transferred to the other end. Nobody's really going to run and chase it. Um, obviously, a, a slow tempo. Um, you know, and it was just a, it, it, like, it was just what you thought it would be. It would, it would, um, it would take a very special player to, to be able to adapt from that to coming into the championship. And um, like I said, the, the the boys that came over was good gold. And when you chatted to them, you know, they, they just understood the situation. Uh, mm. Q80 football is different because that sort of, it's government owned, but the, the shakes sort of adopt a team. So, um, Faz, uh, his team had won everything because it's a bit like he was prepared to, Put money into it and get the best players, and so he that was it. So he 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 won everything. That was his, you know, he, he, his idea. Well, if he can get, if he spends enough money, if he then he just wins everything. That's that's what happens. And when he came over to Forest, um, I think he thought he just could apply the same thing. Um, mm. Now some of the contracts, I mean, I, I've, ne- I've never sort of. My career, I've actually told a, an owner that you're actually playing somebody too much. <laughs> it was almost like you're not. I mean, I've had a conversation where a lot. You need to you need to make a better offer because they're not going to. But to actually say this player, this and him wanting to play the player more than he was actually worth was bizarre. Mm. Um, and it just it didn't understand that it would create a problem. You know, if one player came in and was just ridiculously. Unless he was, you know, some fantastic player that everybody accepted, but that wasn't, you know, we weren't trying to go that way. Um, but sort of, if somebody came in on on wages that were way above everybody else's. They all get to know, and it just creates an imbalance. And uh, so we're just trying to keep everything as tight as we could. But uh, again, so just um, just different discussions or different ways of doing things that, um, you know, if you. He didn't. He didn't. He probably didn't learn as quick as he should have learned. That's mm. what that was his biggest problem. And he wanted, you know, he he could be easily swayed by people that told him, "Do this, do that, do this, do that." And there's enough people in football that can spot a, a naive owner mm. and can milk him for everything that he's probably got. Um, you know, there's some uh, some good people. There's obviously there's some people that you've got to be careful of, and uh, I don't think he could tell the difference. Did you ever think about not taking the job when you were offered it, or was Forest just too big an opportunity to turn down? No, no because I think we, we'd finished really well. The players, like I say, I got on with, a lot with the players, so um, we had an opportunity to bring, you know, a couple of, you know, Billy Sharp coming in because he'd fell out with um, Dean Saunders at Doncaster, and I'm going, it's a no-brainer for me to bring in, you know, somebody that could fire you up to the Premier Division. Mm. Um, so that, you know, so we had. You know, and it wouldn't, it wasn't going to cost the earth, and all those things, and all those things, uh, 
were there, you know, we 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 could do certain things that that, that wouldn't uh, in other clubs would have been a bit of a problem. But Forest, um, we could actually work it um, and not, you know, and still keep the the balanced squad. So um, that was a great opportunity. As I said, it was um, pr- pr- probably I don't know, for the short time I um, spent there. It's probably as enjoyable time as I've had in football. Hmm. Was it a good dressing room? I mean, you talked about the challenges of different wages, these Kuwaiti lads walking in and out. Were they hard to manage or were they a good bunch of lads? The players are players. They just they just want – I they want you to be honest with them. So, you know, somebody said to me, if it looks like bullshit, it smells like bullshit, tastes like bullshit, it probably is bullshit. <laughs> um so yeah, I was, and it was easy because I was the coach. So I, I, I actually had a relationship with where I, you know, I wasn't the manager, so you can, you can tell them sort of things that maybe the manager's got to be a little bit careful of. So that didn't change. I mean, you asked me in your um, one of your pre questions about Lewis McGugan, and mm. I'd always liked uh, Lewis, and um, uh, uh, like I said, my first conversation was with him that you. Lewis, you keep falling out with managers, and he kept. He said to me, "Sean, I don't fall out with managers; uh, they fall out with me." Yeah, <laughs> interesting, uh, but we we somebody who's massive potential, and um, just a bit, he, he had a, a fantastic ability of scoring spectacular goals from twenty, thirty yards, free kicks, whatever. That was his signature strength, um, but at times he overdid it. Mm. But it, what, what you don't want to do is take that ability away from him and tell him. So you say, oh, I can remember this is what, what we've got the place together. And we had four or five clips of Lewis shooting. And I said that, um, look, I don't want to. This Lewis has got a great ability that, that has saved this, you know, got us some points, got us out of jail, whatever. We don't want to take that away from him. But as a group, what will we accept? So I'd, I'd show a clip of Lewis shooting from. I don't know, 25 yards, and the boys would go, actually, these didn't go in, by the way. These went over the bar and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they said, no, we'll accept that. That's that's worth him taking a chance to shoot, and we'll accept that we know that he's not going to score all of them, but he'll score a fair few. And all the clips where they went, no, that's too far out. No, you're unbalanced. So they had a say into what they wanted Lewis to do, and then, you know, Lewis has a really then good idea of, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, knowing full yeah. well that we didn't take the sort of the confidence away from him to say, look, it's an ability and we want you to, if you think it's on, but then if you're unbalanced and you're just doing it because the crowd are frustrated and they want you to have a go from 40 yards, then it's the wrong thing to do. Mm. That collective of the players actually giving him the licence, I suppose, to do certain things, mm. uh, but also give him a structure to work with, I think, helps and that type of thing I think we did quite a lot um, the, the players um, I can remember Dexter saying to me we're playing we're playing Hall at home we played sort of six people in midfield and, and had dominated the last two games that I'd watched absolutely dominated them and, and um, <clears throat> I'd felt we couldn't play we didn't want to match them up in midfield but we wanted to play an extra man uh, and that meant not playing two up front and I remember pulling Dexter and saying, Dex, I'm not going to play. I'm not going to start. Yeah, I'm going to play an extra midfield player because of this, this. So that's a tactical thing. It wasn't anything to do with Dex. And Dex said to me, Sean, 
you're at the city ground and they're not going to they're not going to like you playing <laughs> player up front and I went yeah I, okay I get that um so that was that I, I actually appreciated him telling me he wasn't he wasn't saying he should play. He understood, but he just said, "Look, you know, you might get some stick if uh, you end up losing the game, and you've only played one up front." Which we ended up losing the game, and I did get some stick. Um, <laughs> so it was a case of then, well, how do we how do we balance that out? And the players were were really instrumental in saying, "Okay, if we're going to play two play two two front players, which they wanted, and." Uh, and we then we sort of tried to work the midfield to get Chrissy Cohen in and Reedy, uh, Adeline Guardiola, uh, Henry Lansby. We sort of, you know, they've all a bit like Lewis. They've all got a. You all want to do the things that you want to do. You want to uh, want to play to your strengths, but but the sacrifices you need to do some of this as well. You need to do this. You need to do this. And that was. Um, and I think we just probably leads my last game. It was almost like actually that's probably as good as we've played. It was. It, Everybody understood their roles. It happens that we won the game, even if we hadn't won the game. Um, uh, I think there was a there was almost like a belief that actually this is this is where we can get the best out of everybody. Um, mm. So that was a bit disappointing. That was you know that very game that that uh, my time at Forest came to an end. Uh, we'll come to that in a bit. Um, what are your emotions towards McGugan now, in the sense of unfulfilled potential? Are you? Does that anger you as a coach, or do you feel sympathy for him because he shouldn't be on the scrap heap at, scrap heap at his age, should he? Yeah, I, I mean, I like I like the word potential. Right, I and mean, people tell me that people are talented, and you go, well, somebody's talented at 12, 13, 14, 21, 22. Where does that talent go? They don't suddenly not become talented. So, it's, it's, I like the word potential. He always had potential, and I think it was you, you've just got to he had to find. The right place to play, and he, he maybe he maybe was one of those players that wouldn't start every week, or um, he utilised him for his strengths rather than point out what he couldn't do. Um, so that, that's probably I, I, I'm, I'm sort of very wary of, of blaming players for everything. I think the first thing we have to look at with Sunday is, you know, with his ability. Or Harris has been managed and coached. How, how have we got the best out of him? Or we've just said that well, he, you can't run from A to B quick enough, or you can't, you're not mobile enough, or you're not this, or you're not that. Rather than going, how do we utilise him in the team? Um, so I, I, again, I, his career sort of, sort of when he left Forest, went to Watford, I suppose, and then you thought, well, that's a really good move for him, and he initially did well. But there was there seems to be a sort of trait that initially does well but he can't sustain it whether he gets injured or whether he gets complacent I don't know or um, but there's there's obviously something missing and that's probably as much to, to blame from the people who've managed him coached him rather than him himself um, sometimes the penny drops with players too late um, and that's just a shame um, but sometimes we don't you know I don't think we allow the penny to drop we sort of oops, but not we don't mean to do it, but I think sometimes we uh, we don't connect with the player to him for for him to understand this is where you can you can actually perform your best and this is the way you need to do it. You know, you might have a way of that you want to do in your head, but in the real world, that's not going to well, it's going to work too too frequently for for it to be any use to anybody. Um, 
but like you know, like any boy with ability it's a shame that he's not still playing or if he was it Northampton last time was it? yeah or not back by Port Vale or something like oh, that yeah, yeah I recall um, was Lansbury a similar player in a sense I feel maybe I'm being harsh on him but I feel like he could have had a player a career where he's now playing regularly in the Premier League rather than being on the fringes at Aston Villa was he someone who you saw a bit more in than he's delivered or am I being a bit harsh on him there again you can only speak from the time you were there and um, Henry was really ambitious um, and felt he should be which is nothing wrong in that and felt he he deserved to be playing at a higher level, even when probably he hadn't established himself at the championship level yet. Um, again, uh, I, I think the time he was with me and Forrest, I, he was, I, I couldn't fault him really. I think um, what happened afterwards, I don't know. Um, you know some, some managers suit some players and some players suit some managers. It's just the way it is. If we go back to your time when you, just in the big picture, did you feel that squad was capable of going up if you'd had a free run at it or not? <laughs> well, you, I'm not going to say no. Am I? I, I just think we, I just, I just think we, um, I, just, I thought we, again, I, you'd have to ask the players, I just thought we'd come to a point where we die in there at all the foibles, I suppose, you know, um, everybody... And we settled on a, a sort of way of playing, I suppose, um, that suited everybody. That you know, when I when I first went into the club under Steve, Andy Reid wasn't playing, and yet he was the best player in training every day. I mean, you're never going to chase round and run, but he, you give him the ball, and he was, and he was like, well, how do we get? You know, what well, was one of my tasks I so when I came in? I was speaking to Andy, saying, Andy, how do I get you into the team? Um, so you know that relationship can follow one when you're the manager because he knows that he thinks so. You know, so, um, so he was yeah he he was really good. Um, Billy came in um, again. It was a no-brainer for me. I just think I th- I, I think well, I hope that um, they took a bit of responsibility as well because we tried to instill that into him. So look, you know, this is not about the manager telling you what to do. This is about you understanding your roles uh, I'll support it and if you want if you want to, to you know if if we need to change things let's do it together rather than us moaning about it well he doesn't do this and you do I'd moan about that so I think we had that I, I, I believe we had that relationship um, which took a which I had at Forest really and that took a long time to get there whereas it I think coming in as a coach and they enabled me to short, shorten that process really a, a lot. And um, so we, were, we were we were really constant on giving the players a voice and saying, look, you know, we think this team's good enough, um, but we've got to play consistently in the championship um, uh, and we'll have our blips and, um, you know, we can add to the, add to the team. But getting players in wasn't a problem, getting the right players in. Is always the problem, um, mm. especially with Fawaz, you know, an agent telling him sign this player, sign that player, sign this player, sign that player. That was that was a that was a difficult thing to manage, um, and probably didn't do it very well. Um, I can remember signing Simon Gillette, who from the free transfer, five foot four, 
but he knew me and I just needed some glue. And mm. uh, when, I, when I tried to explain to Fowers, look, I'm not saying he's never, he's, he's, he just, he's the right player for this moment in time. Um, and, and he knows that. And he knows that there'll be a time when we have to say, Simon, well, we need to get a better player in there. But he was, you know, it was just right for the time. So he, he accepted that totally up front with Simon. And um, Fazaz wasn't sure. Um, and then he saw him play two or three games and then said to me, can we double his wages? <laughs> and I was like, well, we don't need to. Um, yeah, that, that, um, you know, George Friend, we were trying to buy George Friend and um, he didn't want him. And then we played Middlesbrough because he went to Middlesbrough and he played Middlesbrough. We played Middlesbrough at the city ground and he came to me after and went to me, who's that left back? I like him. Um, that's George Friend who he tried to buy. But mm. he wasn't, they weren't, um, I don't know, I suppose. They weren't big enough names, a bit like me. They weren't big enough names, so he wasn't interested. I suppose that leads into one of my questions about, did you ever feel like you were really Fawaz's man? Did you feel like you had that confidence of the owners, which you, which any manager needs, to be fair, don't they? <laughs> I don't think anybody anybody felt they were Fawaz's man, did they? I mean, he was he was... He was a one-off. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure all the other managers since me could tell some stories as well. But um, yeah, he was. Uh, um, he was. Um, I, I think I was the. I think I was the. I remember this sounds conceited, but I think I was the right manager for the players at that time, and probably the staff and the people that were running the club because they knew me. Mm. Um, and I took time to go and watch the youth team play and reserves and sort of took an interest in the club and, you know, sort of tried to, when I first went in there, there was a lot of, um, I don't know, not unrest, but it was a case of, well, you know, the Brian Clough sort of hung over the people that had been managed and played for him and nothing was ever as good as when Brian Clough was there. And rather than fight against it, I remember... Inviting Gary and Gary Bertles, Kenny Burns, John McGovern, coming in and saying, "Look, I'd like to chair. This is what we're trying to do. Uh, as long as you know, and make them part of it. Really, to say, look, you know, whether you agree or don't agree, I'm giving you an insight. This is what we're trying to do. So, um, if you and give them a voice, I suppose to say, look, you know, you've got great experience. Why can't we utilize it? Mm. Um." Kenny, <laughs> Kenny was. I, I couldn't imagine what sort of kind of story right. you might. Well, say Kenny just said, when he goes to Derby, they gave him free pints and free drinks and free pies and I'm going, <laughs> Forest Downs. Okay, um, I think there was a lot of, you know, I think the players because people do columns and write and, and, and commentaries and whatever, and everybody's got an opinion, and I think they got sick and tired of sort of Brian's name being sort of not being, I don't know whether that's still the case now, but right, I say I, one of my things was to try and bring them into the club and be part of it to go, you know, to, to be able to come into the training ground and have a cup of tea and have a chat. Mm-hmm. You know, not just with me, but with the players, you know, to, to feel as if they'd, you know, they, they, they were wanted or they were, um, you know, they weren't, they weren't just something from the past and, um, we couldn't learn from anything from it. Mm. You um, you touched on your departure there. I mean, that your sacking still goes down now as 
one of the maddest decisions in the, the the recent history of the club, and it kind of a lot of people sums up for Waz's tenure because I think you were you fifth or sixth. You just beat Leeds on Boxing Day. By the sound of it, you wanted to sack you on Christmas Day. I mean, it came out a bottle of the blue to to the fans. Did, did you actually see it coming? Did you think your days might be numbered, or was it a total? No, I no, no, absolutely um, no knowledge whatsoever. In hindsight. In hindsight, because um, Alex Matisse, Alex McLeish came in obviously quickly, so mm. if that happens, then usually there's something going on. Um, and then you look back, and we played Peterborough away. Uh, I think we won three one. And I know Darren Ferguson quite well, so I was chatting to Darren Ferguson, and Alex walks in. Mm. And then we play Wolves at Wolves. I think we won 2-1. All my family are there. I'm a Wolverhampton Wolves fan as well. Um, and I go up to see my family and um, Alex there chatting to the, my family, you know. So, so, and then, yeah. so then you think, ah, uh, then you put two and two together and come up with um, uh, ex, not, not ex-Man United, but Alex Ferguson, all that it's all links in really, but um yeah, yeah. I was um it was like again disappointed but I like I say I I went in with my eyes open. Um you th- you'd you'd think you'd get the sack because you'd lose games on the trot or the fans weren't uh, rallying against you and then okay, but um to get the to to get the phone call at uh, I was actually after it was after the game, Leeds game. I was actually editing a video to what just the Leeds game of the things I wanted to show the players the next day. Um, that was my Boxing Day or Boxing Evening, and so yeah, one of those things. But football's football, and I think you know you can. It's life's too short to be bitter. Just get on with it. And it happened via phone call, I guess, for Mark Arthur. It wasn't face to face. They didn't even. <laughs> no, 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 Mark. Mark had the inevitable task of doing it, and uh, that's always difficult as well. So, um, yeah. I guess your emotions. It's a stupid question. So you were very angry at the time, I assume. Has that, has that changed um, with hindsight? Are you a bit more, they say, fair about it? I think that's football. Oh, I wasn't angry. I, I, I was more disappointed. I suppose I was. Um, you know, I think when when I took the job, I, you, you got the impression that this could be, you know, you could be um, a rough ride. Uh, mm. But um, but I, I, again, I, I like I said before, I, my short time there, I enjoyed immensely. Um, mm. um, my time as a coach, I enjoyed, and uh, um, you know, I thought we had a you know a sort of Paul, Rob, and uh, Floyd became almost my backroom team, you know, um, because, because I'd built up a relationship with them before. So that, that worked quite well. Um, mm. um, so no, I, um, uh, I, 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 I don't do a lot of these things. I don't, the media is something that I, I'm not, I don't think I'm very good at. And it's like, okay, I'll just leave it in the past. But the fact that, that I'm doing this probably is an, uh, an example of actually, I think maybe I owe just an explanation or just to get my view of what happened. And um, no, Forrest is one of the, uh, one of the probably proudest moments, of, you know, to, to stand and 
you know, just before every, every game and, um, you know, hear the Bullock and Tyre and, you know, that that is yeah, something that I'll treasure. Uh, well, we're grateful for you doing it. I wanted to ask you about after Forest. I know you had management stints at Warsaw and Bristol City, but I was going to ask you about, you, you were were you Brendan Rodgers' assistant at Liverpool? Were you, you uh, coach? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a different world. That must be you know, an incredible club to walk into, even if they weren't European champions. I think they had Firmino and Henderson and Milner, I guess. What, what, how can you sum up that experience for just the, the stature and sheer presence of Liverpool? Um, I was, I was working with, um, uh, the football association at the time. I was sort of in charge of the under 19 team, which was probably the most talented set of players I've ever been have the pleasure to uh, to sort of be involved in um, uh, Joe Gomez Ruben Lucas G Harry Winks um, Izzy Brown um, there was just Daily Alley I got they were just you know it was like how do I pick a team with all this um, who am I going to leave out Um so, yeah, it's a really talented, talented group of players. Um, and then I got a phone call from out of the blue because I'd just come back from Russia with the under-19s and I didn't know what had happened at Liverpool. I was unaware, so I was in the garden. And um, I got a phone call and uh, Northern Ireland accent. And, uh, and as you know, what football people are like, you, know, you take everything with a little bit of a pinch of a salt. So I just thought it was a bit of a wind up to, to start with. Um, um, and then yeah, it ended up being Brendan, who, who I, I sort of knew, but I didn't know that well. Um, uh, and asked if I'd be interested. Um, so that was a big, that was a difficult decision to make, to be fair. I, 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 looking back, I must have tried. I remember speaking to so many people, trying to find somebody who would tell me, Sean, stay where you are, don't do it. But I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, I, if I'd made the – well, I wouldn't. Regardless of what happened there, I wouldn't have made that decision. I, I think it was um, – I, I think you've got to get the right club at the right time. And then I, probably for me it was the wrong club at the wrong time. Uh, it was an experience, and it, and the people there, like uh, I can remember walking through the first day, feeling really nervous. And the gate man, I forget what his name was. The gate man was absolutely fantastic. And somebody said to me, "The quality of any organisation will probably represent with the first person that you see." And I remember I was interviewed, and I said that, and um, the first person I saw was the gate man, and he was, you know, uh, I, I could have been. I could have been Jurgen Klopp. He couldn't treat me any better. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just really nice. Um, but it was, I, I found it difficult there. I must admit, um, just to find a niche to to understand what I was there for. Um, just again, a various experiences that you just go. You know, spent pre-season traveling to Australia, uh, Beijing. I don't know, just just thinking this is not pre-season. This is just a commercial tour. And, and it, I just couldn't uh, – that world probably doesn't suit me, I'm much afraid. Um, I'm just thinking, well, we've got Stoke in the first game of the season. We played them the last game of last season and we got beat 6-1. And when I asked, has anybody looked at the footage? 
to sort of analyse, no, no, it was Stevie G's last game, they were all going to buy afterwards, and we just forgot about it. I just thought, I, I don't know, I just thought that was wrong. But, but um, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, fantastic club, and it's fantastic to see him doing so well. And uh, and people like James Miller were there, and Jordan Henderson, who are, you know, I, I've met some really good pros in my time, but these are the, you know, these people don't need to do what they do. They're financially secure. They're but they're just driven. It's, money's not driving them. It's just trying to be the best they can. I mean, James Milner used to come into training probably two hours before anybody else every day mm-hmm. to start his prehab to get ready for training every day. And he just does it. That's the way he works. And, he's, and I wonder he's still playing. He looks so fit, but you know, I don't think people realise that they just see him play and go, "Oh, he's a good player and he's a good character." But the amount of work they put in. Uh, uh, staggering. I, um, I, 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 I came out again. I can remember doing. A, he said to me, "Sean, can you do some shooting with me afterwards?" Yeah, no problem. So I'm doing some shooting sessions with him, and every time he's he's missed the target, he's gone and got the ball, <laughs> and I've gone, "Wow!" And he just—that's what he's always done. He said, it's, "You know, I've missed the target. That's my fault. I go and get the ball." And you just mm. think oh, that's, that's something you do with your under twelves, um, you know, on a Tuesday night. He was a you know fully fledged England international with multiple awards and still driving himself on to go. Yeah, I should have done better, so I'll go and get the ball. Yeah, fantastic. Your most recent jobs have been in coaching, play, working with players to improve them. Is that what you enjoy now? You know, not the day to day pressures of management, not dealing with the media. Is that something that suits you a lot better? I, I, I think. Improving players is part of the job, whether you're managing. I think that's. I, I can remember at Doncaster saying to the players, "I'm going to judge you on your performances, not the result." Which is like, I, I must have been talking Swahili because people had never heard that, and we were consistent. So you know, we can come off a game winning, and but we judge them on their performance, right? Okay, and we can come off the game losing, and you now no, we were trying to be consistent. Suited. A lot of the players, some of the older players found that quite difficult. You know, they came off flus and they expected somebody to throw teacups and rant and rave. And we we're going, no, we've actually done no. Somebody's fell over in the last minute and we've lost one nil. Our performance has been really good, so we were consistent on it. Um, and I, I've always said to in in whenever I ask in the media, if somebody can tell me how to play poorly and win consistently then we'd all be doing it. So the only way you can win is to play, is to improve your performances. So it should be performance-based and you've just got to deal with all the noise that goes around it. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, the, the fact that you're, you're, um, you're not judged, that was, the, that was the hardest thing, I think, in management. Judged, arbitrary judged by a result and what goes on in the media. Man, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really fair, um, you know, so suddenly, uh, I can remember. I can remember watching a just a kids' game on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, and two boys, two lads next to me, or two, two blokes next to me, were talking about Wayne Rooney, and they'd be lot in the media about his um, fitness. He, you know, not the player he was, and they were they were chatting about it, and I'm just earwigging, and uh, and then one of them said something about, oh, did you watch the game? Because England had played the previous night. And he said, oh, no, no, I don't watch football. And yet he spent the last 20 minutes having an opinion on on Wayne Rooney. And I'm thinking, because what he'd read in, in the newspapers and uh, 
Um, so I find that a little bit. Um, I still do now to be to when people make assumptions over people just because it, it fits the narrative really more so than anything else. Um, so yeah, um, but then you you get the same in developing players. People tell you about players, but people tell me that there's no leaders anymore, and yet. When I watch people coach, there's multiple there's, there's instances in so many instances where you can give leadership opportunities to players, and we just we just don't see them. We just you know the coach is a bit reluctant to let go and go and let the players decide for themselves. Um, so that's where I am at the minute, trying to um, or probably change the view on coaching more so than which will affect players, obviously. Um, one last aside I forgot to ask you about beforehand. Did you happen to watch Bournemouth v Forest last night on Sky? Yeah, or were you... Well, to be fair, my missus, uh, I was arguing. I said, I've got, I thought you'd ask me this and said, but Bake Off, Bake Off took the first, I, I'm not a Bake Off fan, but Bake Off, at the Bake Off final had to uh, be on. So I saw the, saw bits of the first half and probably most of the second half. Can you explain or give a bit of insight from manager's point of view if you're willing to, about why Bournemouth won the game. I mean, I, I thought Brooks was a big difference between the sides. Am I oversimplifying it? Or, I mean, what what made Bournemouth so good on the night? I, if you if, simply put, I this is again this is just a personal thing. Bournemouth expect to win. Hmm. Forest hoping to win. That's the difference. And I, and I know it's, it's a clip statement, but that's and all my. When teams do really well, it's because they expect to win, and, and you go through phases. Bournemouth at the end of last season, every time they went into a game, they're just hoping they were going to win. And now, so it's you know, it takes time for that confidence to get into the players. You know, what people do is swap the players because it thinks it's a shortcut, and sometimes you you need to swap the players. But you know, trying to get an, instill into a group of players an expectancy, they're not an overconfidence, not a complacency of expecting to win. I think is 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 a, is a really good skill, and I think the top managers have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mourinho's gone in that, you know, and like him or loathe him, he's gone in and you know and and changed the mentality. It's probably a bit of a cliched word, but you know, the Tottenham going to games now expecting to win because he's changed the way they view it, and I think that's um, that's quite difficult when you lack confidence or your things are not going your way. Um, I can remember. I can remember again in my Doncaster days when we first got promoted to the championship. We played Nottingham Forest on Boxing Day, and um, we were, I think we were bottom of the championship at the time. But the but the confidence in the team and the quality of the, our play, even though we were bottom, had not been diminished, and the players. The players went into every game expecting to win, even though we weren't winning that many. Um, and we beat Forest four-one. Um, and I think from that time on, that belief in that we could win every game. Even then, there was games then we didn't play as well as the other games we'd lost. But I don't know. There's that fine line between expecting and hoping um, makes all the difference. And uh, yeah, if I had to say one thing, that would be it. I'm, I'm watching the game because um, you could say they, had, you know, a couple of chances in the second half to sort of draw two two, but it's almost uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's that difference that it's quite hard to quantify. And um, mm. 
So we need to be patient with Chris then. He's going to need time to turn it around, basically. Well, I, I th- yeah, I think that's, you know, to try and to change people's um, mindsets or to change the way they view it is quite difficult because human beings are complex animals. And uh, um, I don't know whether it's easier when there's no fans or harder if there's no fans. I'm not sure. Mm. There'll be times when clubs of um, having no fans, okay, for the financial things are difficult, but actually they're in a period of time where actually if no fans has helped them, where other times when, um, you know, they're, they're doing really well and the, the momentum that the fans behind you gives you, gives you an extra boost as well. So, um, yeah, difficult times, I think, for everybody. Well, Sean, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time. Thanks for everybody. Okay to this um do give us a good rating on itunes and subscribe on youtube as ever uh thanks for your time sean i hope you enjoyed it i know you don't do many interviews but um we're very grateful and um yeah i thought you were very good at it and you gave us some great insight so thanks we will catch you soon thank you for listening to garibaldi red a nottingham forest podcast if you enjoyed today's episode then please let us know we love hearing your feedback we'll be back soon with another episode thanks for listening